The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Welcome to the show. The Phil Hay Show is brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. My name's Dan Moylan. Hello from The Athletic remotely. Here's Phil Hay. Remote but still alive. Hello. And from The Square Ball, Michael Normanton. Here but barely alive. This January, you can subscribe to The Athletic for a special price. You can enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers on the planet, as well as ad-free versions of all our podcasts for less than £1 a week. So just head to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod to sign up and you can enjoy The Athletic throughout 2021. That's theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. The football. Everything's all right again with the football, which is good news. We needed to win this one, didn't we? It was important to put games like this away. Everything was all right with the football, even prior to this game. I know Brighton was a, a mess and I know January hadn't been great. But the one thing Leeds have avoided all season, and, and Bielsa touched on this after the game at, at Newcastle, actually, he said when you get into little runs that aren't great, ideally you get out the other side of them as quickly as possible and, and before they become an issue. And they never have become an issue. Um, they, they, they've had the knack of managing to prevent two defeats, three, you know, becoming three defeats to, to prevent you know, a little downturn of form becoming severe and, and sucking them in. Um, but I think there's a general feeling that Newcastle at the moment are borderline the worst team in the Premier League. I, I don't think they're the worst squad. I don't think they're, they're the worst squad um, pound for pound or man for man. And that was probably shown in, in the second half on Tuesday night. Uh, but I think the reaction to losing to Newcastle would have been more severe again than the reaction to losing to Brighton. And and. You know, just as as it has done before, that result opens up a, a slightly bigger gap over the bottom three. It opens up a gap which looks not quite unassailable, but it is very, very wide now. Uh, and it, you know, without being a, a vintage performance and without avoiding some pretty dicey moments in the second half, it was a very, very good result. Our immediate take on it on the match ball over on our podcast was uh, one of relief. I don't think Michael and I particularly enjoyed that second half, especially first half, not too bad. Second half, very, very heavy going. How are you feeling a couple of days down the line now, Michael? All right. I think we'd be having a slight panic had we they turned that around and got a result from it, either a draw or a Newcastle win. I think there would be a little bit of nervousness kicking in. But, I mean, we deserve to win the game in the main because we had such control of it and it felt like we just we just completely let go of it. If, I still feel we are a better team than Newcastle and better put together. But the second half, it, it did get away from us completely. And, and in the end... We scored with pretty much our only chance, and it, that managed to be enough for us. But it was—it um, felt like it was more like hard work than it needed to be. There is a difference between Newcastle and and Leeds in that I, I think there are players at, at Newcastle who are as talented as as many of the players at Leeds, and and who would probably get into um, Leeds starting eleven or, or certainly into the matchday squad. But there's no real plan or, or no structure in the way that Bielsa has managed to to build leads. And I think that goes back to the, the story of his entire tenure at the club. There's always been a strategy behind it and there's always been a, a clear idea of who fits where, how they're supposed to fit. And and because of that, the, the ability to just rock and roll with injuries and, and suspensions, players missing, you know, Urente going down eight minutes in again on Tuesday, but being able to to plug that gap, okay, the defence was not perfect by any means and, and the midfield really struggled in the second half. But again, you come out of that game with a 2-1 win and I, I think more and more you, you're seeing the value of having a coach who, who has the players drilled and, and has the players totally clued in and, and on what they're doing and more to the point, 
has them in, in a, a mindset where they're happy with it and they understand it. it. It does not feel like a happy camp at all at Newcastle. I think that flows through um, in some of the, the performances. And, and you would say without any doubt at this stage that you would rather be Leeds than Newcastle. I mentioned on our podcast, actually, that I had a friend, Newcastle fan, who texted me during that um, that first half, I think it was, and he was saying, I just want us to lose now so it'll get rid of him sooner. That's the state that they're in, I think, um, Newcastle. Uh, let's um, let's go through some of the incidents and some of the talking points then. Um, big one was on the team sheet. It was Click who made way for Calvin Phillips to come back in with a bit of a shuffle around the, uh, the fullbacks and midfield and so on. Um, what do you make to that? My initial reaction was a bit of a surprise, but then set against the way that he's played in the, the previous three or four weeks... I, I, I guess it made sense and, and I think it was justified. I think he has been a bit flat. I, I think he and Rodrigo found it extremely difficult to influence the game properly um, against Brighton. There was a, a big struggle to get any connection between those two further up the pitch and also with the strike behind them. Um, but it is unusual. I mean, it's unusual to the extent that Bielsa's had 111 league games now and Click has started 109, which is... You know, extraordinary when you think about it. Firstly, that he's been consistent enough to, to justify being selected so many times. But secondly, that, that suspension and injury haven't interfered at, at any stage. And, you know, the only time at which he sat out previously was Derby away last season, second last game of the season, which came on the back of 48 hours of, of pretty intense celebrations after promotion. Um, and, and you would almost say that this time round, this is the first time that he's been dropped for, for tactical reasons or for reasons because of form. And, and I thought it I thought it was the right decision. I, I think it was justified. And I actually felt that before half time, the balance of Stuart Dallas and Calvin Phillips in there seemed to be right. It, it did give Leeds the, the sort of foothold that you're used to them having they looked like leads as they as we've come to recognise them under Bielsa. I, I think it underlines two things though, and, and the second half did again um, up up at St James's Park. The first is that if truth be told, I think Leeds lean too heavily on Cleek. You know that there isn't really um, out and out cover for him or, or properly recognised specialist cover for him. And in the same way as as you could say with Phillips as well. And I guess with Leeds now in a, a very strong league league position and, and creeping towards the point of, of safety. You know, there's still a few results away from that, but but not a mile away. I guess our attention is going to turn now to to what needs to be learned from this season, what needs to happen in the summer, where it is that they need to to improve. And I, I, I still feel that if money has to go anywhere when the next transfer window comes around, it's it's got to go into midfield positions. It's got to go into somebody who can either compete with Cleek or, or play ahead of him. Um, somebody who can certainly cover for Phillips and perhaps you know compete with Phillips if there are points at which Phillips form dips as well. Um, so t- to my mind, it, it was the right decision and, and it made sense. But I think, again, it does just show how thin leads are there. Do you think we need a personnel change in midfield or is there a need for a structural change as well? Because against Newcastle, Cher had an awful lot of freedom just to run straight through the middle and Ben White did a similar thing in the Brighton game. And it's it feels like it's a recurring theme that if people are running from deep at us, we're just unable to cope with it. Yeah, I thought there was definite similarities between the second half against Newcastle and, and much of the game against Brighton. And, and Charles' role and his style seemed to completely change after half time on Tuesday. I don't know if that was on the instructions of Bruce or I don't know if Newcastle's players just realised themselves that they weren't playing high enough up the pitch and they, they weren't being aggressive enough. Because as, as you do see against Leeds from time to time, once they started to press and once they started to make it difficult for Leeds to play out, it, it did start to come apart at the at the seams slightly. And I, I think it is structural and I think it depends 
you know, Leeds' quality in midfield depends on the way that a game is balanced. When they're dominant and, and when they're controlling possession and when they're playing in the opposition half, that system of Phillips in behind Cleek and, and for example, Rodrigo, or it could be Hernandez, it can be dangerous and, and it can be very, very effective. What, what I always feel is that when Leeds come under the cosh and when they've got midfielders coming onto them, particularly the presence of somebody like Rodrigo or Hernandez in there means that defensively, they're less strong than they need to be. And I think there is the danger of them getting overrun, regardless of the fact that Cleek is actually is useful defensively and, and Phillips is obviously excellent defensively. They can be outnumbered. And, and I think, you know, that there is the scope for, for opposition teams to get on top of them if they're brave enough to play like that. But I think you could alter, without altering the structure or without altering the formation or the, the style of play, I think you could change that by having more options in there. I mean, I don't want to labour the point on Rodrigo De Paul because that has never really um, got anywhere in, in terms of Leeds bringing him in from Udinese. But I do think somebody in that mould, somebody who sort of falls in between the category of an eight and a ten, but is clearly physical and clearly has a lot of presence in midfield, somebody of that ilk, to my mind, would be an advantage if you could add them to the squad. Well, to quote Wayne in Wayne's world, she will be mine. Oh yes, she will be mine except I'm talking about Rodrigo de Paul. I'm just talking about the midfield there, actually, and the reliance on click. And to an extent, this was the case with Pablo last year, wasn't it? There was such heavy reliance on the pair of them for our forward momentum through the middle. But actually now, one positive to come out of the changes we've had in the transfer window, we've got Rodrigo and Rafinha, who have both lightened the burden there somewhat on uh, on click and, and Pablo, um, which is a good thing, I think, spreading that about. And then I guess the next transfer window, we'll see as kind of, uh, take further steps down that road. But we'll talk about actually Rafinha and Rodrigo in just a tick. But the other big thing that happened at the start of the game, so we'll get this one out of the way, Urente getting injured after eight minutes and it was hard not to think, oh, you poor sod. Yeah, and this is his, his right hamstring again, which was the, the problem, the, the muscle that went towards the end of the game at Chelsea. And it, it has been a case for him of just one door closing another smashing in his face. He, he obviously picked up the, the groin injury, the initial injury on international duty with Spain. And that was about two weeks after he'd signed from Sociedad. He'd, he'd been on the bench against Manchester City, but barely kicked a ball in, in training or, or anything else. And then was off off with Spain um, for their, their international fixtures. Uh, the, the difference, I think, between Tuesday and Chelsea was that with the Chelsea game, Bielsa kind of admitted and, and knew himself that he was rushing Llorente back, but it was becoming difficult not to because, you know, there were injuries elsewhere. And um, obviously Robin Koch was carrying that knee problem that was that became more severe at Chelsea and, and he went for surgery after that. Um, so it wasn't entirely a surprise that, that he had an issue during that game and it would have been Bielsa's preference to put him through a, a, a bunch of under-23s fixtures first just to build him up. But on this occasion, I mean, Urente was supposed to play um, in the 23s against Burnley a couple of weeks ago and he was pulled out of that squad deliberately by Bielsa so that he could have a a full and hard week of training with the first team um, at Thorpe Arch instead. And it was the first kind of sign that Bielsa was starting to get round to the the point of thinking that that he wanted to get him into the team and and to get him into the team properly, you know, not just as a sort of um, kind of last-ditch option when when Koch um, drops out of the side away at Chelsea. And then last week, they, they did two multiple sessions rather than one. And by all accounts, dispatches from Thorpe Arch were saying that Urenti was right in the thick of them, you know, really in the mix, very aggressive, um, very high tempo, looking extremely good. And I think 
he seemed to realise last week that this was his chance, you know, that his, his time was going to come at Newcastle and, and he was going to start. He was going to start not because anybody else was missing necessarily, but because Bielsa wanted to, to get him into the team. But he's only lasted eight minutes up there and we're still, he, he went for a scan um, Wednesday morning and we're, we're still to hear exactly how he is. Bielsa will, will tell us when his press conference comes round before Leicester. But you would think he'll be looking at a number of weeks, um, you know, if, if not a month before he's, he's able to return. And it seemed to me quite quite evident, looking at his face and Llorente's reaction, that this one has really got to him. I think there's a lot of despondency there and a lot of frustration for him that his, his hamstring's gone again. And it was quite telling afterwards that Bielsa said, I, you know, I, I am sort of worried about his mental state now because this one will be will be quite difficult to deal with. You know, you've had one setback, you've dealt with it, you've had a second setback, you've dealt with it, but you can almost rationalise it because you you weren't quite ready. I think with this one, everybody felt that that he genuinely was ready to go, Urenti included. And and once again, looking at a, a period on the sidelines. You do wonder sometimes, don't you, if it is the demands of Bielsa's system and not having the full uh, the full pre-season. It seems to claim at least one player or two of them every season, doesn't it, this uh this recurring injuries thing? Well, I think if your body is susceptible to that, and it's important to say actually that Urenti was never considered as somebody who was chronically injury prone in Spain. He had injuries, but but one of the most significant ones was an ankle ligament problem. He did twisting an ankle, rolling an ankle um, in a game for Sociedad against Legrones. So, you know, that that is not what you'd call a, a kind of um, recurring muscle strain. It's, it's very, very unlucky that. And, and he did have muscle injuries, but I think at the age of 27, not really many more than than your average footballer. Um, but yeah, if, you know, if your body suddenly develops an issue, if it has a problem or if you have a muscle that, that suddenly is is struggling. I don't think the regime at, at Leeds is going to make it easy for you and I don't think it's necessarily going to help. But it is critical if you're going to play in, in a Bielsa team and, and to keep up to speed with his tactics that you're able to cope with his training schedule, that you're able to cope with the style and the, the pace that Leeds play at in games. Um, and I mean, Motherball has always been one of his crucial gauges for where players are at. You know, if you do well in Motherball, you've got every chance of playing. If you do poorly, in Motherball, the chances are you you won't feature. And, and and people at Leeds used to say to me that one of the issues for Izzy Brown, who was obviously here on loan um, in Bielsa's first season and, and hardly played, was that he never really shone in Motherball. His statistics were never that impressive. His intensity was never that impressive or, or not as impressive as Bielsa would have wanted. Um, but as I say, Bjorendi seemed to cope with him well last week. He, he seemed to do fine. He, he seemed to be um, in good nick and, and ready to go. And, and we'll find out in the next few days uh, how you know how serious this is, but it is it is kind of getting to the point now where, given that a, another month out would take him probably to to March or or beyond, um, it's you know it's going to be for his first season um, at Elland Road. It's going to be very difficult to get to the end of it and feel like he's made any significant impact. One of the other signings in the window, then Rodrigo, who definitely didn't spit. Good to be able to put that one to bed. Doesn't seem like the type. I did enjoy a Newcastle fan on Twitter arguing that even if he didn't spit, he probably meant to, so he should be punished anyway. <laughs> Which was getting it's into all- the, the realms of Dakara biting himself, or sort of the fallen player biting himself rather than Dakara having done it at the uh, at, at the, that game in the, in the championship. So yeah, slightly some strange theories going around, but he didn't do it, did he? He was he was laughing as he went down. No, he didn't. Um, he, I, I do remember that tweet about Dakara. Somebody um, coming back at me. At, at, particularly pro Chilino poster um, on Twitter saying um, 
I mean, yeah, what what if it was um, what if it, the Fulham player had bitten himself in in that challenge as opposed to Ducara um, biting him? And you thought, yeah, that's that's probably it. Um, with with Rodrigo, it, it was strange because at the press conference afterwards, um, it, Bielsa was asked about it first, and then Steve Bruce, and both of them said they knew nothing about it. But it was implied that Shah had said himself that he was spat at, and obviously he clarified afterwards that that he hadn't been. And um, I spoke to people at Leeds who said, look, you know, Rodrigo isn't hiding the fact that he he said something offensive to him, or, or, or you know, he said something to to rail him, and that was where the reaction came from. But no, there, there was no there was no spitting at all. I mean, I, I certainly feel that for the money that was paid and, and for the, the impact they've made, Rafinha has been the better signing so far. And, and the, the thing I really like about him is that he is showing the capacity to be a match winner. He's obviously got tricks and he's got a lot of skill. And I like his positioning and, and the way he, he reads games. But he took that finish really nicely on Tuesday. And, and the ball to Harrison for the, the second goal was was a beauty too. It was right on the money. And, and from you know a difficult position to, to pick out a chip ball like that. Um, and I think we're, we're all of the mindset that, that that is looking like a really astute buy, uh, and particularly at £70 million. Pounds, he, he really does seem to me like the, the bargain purchase so far. Um, and and I suspect going forward, that's a, the type of talent that Leeds are going to want to try and pull in more and more if they can. You know, that is the top player who elevates you from a promoted championship side to a competitive Premier League team. Um, and, and without any doubt, the, the scouting around that one has been has been very, very good. We could at least double our money on him if we wanted to sell him now. Not that we do, of course, but I, I really liked the awareness that he had to make himself a yard there on the edge of the box because it was crowded and it was busy, but he knew exactly what he was doing and the, and the finish was very, very calm under pressure, as you said. Well, I'll, I'll touch on this a, a little bit later because we're going to speak about the 49ers and we're going to speak about Leicester and the two are, are slightly intertwined um, or were in, in some of the comments from Andrea Radrazani earlier this week. Um, but one of the things that Leicester do and, and are, I guess you could say brave enough to do is to look at offers that go you know off the scale for their best players and you know, be, I guess have the the courage to take those that they feel that they can't turn down. They're they're extremely good at signing players at a relatively low value, and seeing the valuation rise spectacularly. So Harry Maguire, for example, but you also saw it with Mares. You've seen it with Ben Chilwell um, going to Chelsea. And um, you saw it with with Drinkwater. You know, it, it is a, a kind of repetitive cycle. And you know, I. I can't help but feel that Rafinha's value will spiral from here. I, I can't help feel that if he is as good as he looks like he is, it might be that you have very, very big clubs who start to take an interest and, and start to knock on the door. And I'm not suggesting he'll, he'll be going anytime soon um, from Leeds. And, and I'm not suggesting that it will actually you know, turn out that way. Um, but it is interesting when you move into this league that you suddenly realise if, if you develop players of very, very or, or at least sign and, and then um, improve players with very, very high calibre, you do suddenly become a bit vulnerable to the sides out in Europe who have more money than you. The prospect of losing a player to Real Madrid is somehow a lot more palatable than losing one to Bournemouth, though. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Or to, or to Norwich, yeah. It's uh, the sure sign of, of uh, how far Leeds will have come if they start being a feeder club for, for Real Madrid rather than Norwich. Although they've probably got more money than Real Madrid at the moment. Yeah, and Barcelona combined. Um, but it's fine, though, because we'll be in Europe in a few years' time, as uh, Andrea Radrazani mentioned, as we will hear in part two of this show. A word on Rodrigo, though, before we do um, tie up this bit. A better performance from him, I thought. I thought he was he was quietly effective uh, against Newcastle. I think quietly effective is 
probably the best description for him so far. He, he has had games where he's really shone. I thought he, would, he was particularly good away at Aston Villa. I thought he had a very good cameo against Arsenal off the bench, which was straight after his COVID infection as well. And I don't think you can... Um, you can underestimate the potential impact of of that illness um, on a on an athlete like him, and it, it without any doubt the pitch at Newcastle was going to make it easier for him. You know, it, it was a much better surface. It's the sort of surface that we'll hopefully see when we get back to Ellen Road or something close to it um, for the Leicester game, given that they've they've now put down this new layer of of turf at Ellen Road, but. I still think that's that is going to turn out to be a good signing, Rodrigo. I, I really think it is. At, at twenty-eight million pounds, it's got to be good. You know, you, you've got to play well and you've got to be consistently effective for that to seem like good value and for it to seem like a wise investment. I, I've no doubt at all that the ability and the talent is there. I guess it, it it's all going to be a question of whether, in the long term, he's suited to playing in that role. You know the. the kind of 10 role behind Bamford up front or whether actually you're going to get most out of him by by playing him as a number nine. If, if you pick through his track record and, and look at how he played at, at Valencia and the, the variety of his positioning there, I don't think there's any doubt that he, he knows how to play in this area and I don't think there's any doubt that, that he can do it and that it's reasonable to ask him. It's, it's just a case of working out whether at twenty eight million pounds, do you get most from that from him up front, or or is it best with him in behind Bamford? I think that's a longer term thing for Bielsa to work out. It is an interesting question because um, in the build up to the Brighton game, I was listening to Radio Leeds and they did an interview. He was the player that was put up that week um, for the press, and he was saying his best position is playing off a striker, did Rodrigo, which I found interesting. Makes you just wonder where exactly what is his, his niche at Leeds United. Yeah, and you know, at points Valencia played out wide, um, or or as part of a, a front three, and and he has been a nine, and he has this reputation as Spain's number nine, which makes you think of him as a, a centre forward. To to look at him play, he doesn't jump out and strike me as an out and out centre forward. You know, he doesn't automatically look like that sort of player, and in, in the way that Bamford does, I, I don't think you can watch Bamford and think that uh, as much as Middlesbrough in his younger years kind of played him. Played him as a bit of a, a forward on the wide right so that he cut in and, and shoot with his left. These days, I think he is a number nine. You know, I do think that that with Bamford, you're talking about a centre forward and nothing else. It, there's definitely a bit more versatility um, with Rodrigo. And I don't think either in, in Rodrigo's body language, I'm seeing much frustration in the fact that he isn't playing up front. It, it doesn't feel as if his, his ego is being hurt by any of this. It doesn't feel as if he feels like he's being particularly restrained. I think that the... the honest truth is that he's been a bit inconsistent really he's had games like Brighton where he hasn't managed to to have an effect at all he's had games like um, Newcastle and, and Villa and, and Arsenal where he's looked every bit the, the player that you thought Leeds had signed um, but he's adapting and acclimatising isn't he and, and like everybody else he's trying to do that in what is a, a very weird season a season that's congested and difficult and messy um, and it's not; these are not optimum conditions for players to come into England for the first time and settle. And, and you know, with Rafinha, um, I think he, you know, it's, it's a it's a big green tick for him. With um, Rodrigo, I, I think he's doing okay. Do you think he's got a chance of playing up front for a little while? Bamford's been out of form for a bit. It's, mm. It felt like Bamford's was due a performance against Newcastle, and it didn't really happen, happen it, for him. It feels like he needs a goal to me with Bamford. 
It might be the case. Yeah. Um, it, there was obviously the, the move for the, the first goal that Bamford was involved in and, and kind of played it right and, and leads what that nicely and, and scored. But I, I would put it down as his error for Newcastle's goal. It was a, it was a bit of a lazy pass towards sailing or a bit of a, a casual pass that, that did catch Leeds badly out of position and, and meant that Newcastle were able to, to just kind of waltz through the, the middle of their defence. I, th- I think it'll take a lot for Bielsa to drop him in the way that it's taken a lot for him to think about taking Clay out of the team. It's not something he's minded to do on a whim. Um, and, you know, it, Bamford's form, I, th- I think, has, has dipped a little bit like a, a few other players this month. But it, I, I still feel that if you're taking him out and you're putting Rodrigo up front and bringing Hernandez into um, into that number ten role. You've got to ask again: Is is there enough solidity there? And and is Rodrigo going to manage to do the things that Bamford does at his best? The, the running the channels, the holding up of play, the, the kind of fighting with centre backs in in isolation. It's not to to say that he can't, but it goes back to the old you know the old argument about Eddie and Ketia, which is that in in Bielsa's head. He just sees so much in Bamford that fits with the plan and, and fits with the strategy. Um, and it's not to say that he wouldn't drop Bamford because he, he has done it before. But, I, I, you know, if, if you were to ask me, will Rodrigo start up front at Leicester this weekend? I, I, I don't think I can see it. A word, though, for Tyler Roberts, who came off the bench to replace Bamford in this game. And I thought he had a good performance, actually. He did. Um, he, I felt he, he was more effective really in that spell than Bamford had been certainly at the, the start of the second half. It's been difficult for Roberts. He, he hasn't had much time on the pitch. Um, it was kept very very quiet, but his absence after the turn of the year, the understanding is that it was COVID-related and you know a little bit like Rodrigo. It's, it's hard to know what the, the impact will be. It's, it's easy to think that at that age and in that sort of physical condition, you get a bit of a cough, a bit of a sniffle you know a, a bit of a cold and you shake it off but you know as, as they've seen at Newcastle with um, some maximum for example um, it, it can have a, a big impact and it, and it can set you back quite a distance I'm still not sure where it's going for Roberts at Leeds he's got a year left at the end of this season there was obviously quite a lot of interest in him um, this month although Leeds haven't taken any of it up the, the offer Derby in particular were very keen to sign him on, on loan and we also wanted him to stay, but I think it was quite sort of sympathetic to the fact that if, if Roberts has said, look, I'd like to try and get more games, I'd like to go and, and get scoring again, get playing regularly, I, I think they might genuinely have, have considered it, but it, it hasn't come to that. And Bielsa always says to us that he very much sees Roberts as, as a big part of, of what's going on at Leeds. But as I say, 12 months to go after this season finishes. And I, I suspect come the summer, there's going to have to be a fairly major decision about his future. Halfway through the season, then 19 games gone, 26 points on the board. Everything's fine, isn't it? Well, I would say so. But I, I was quite interested following Twitter last night as um, Manchester United were making a mess of it against Sheffield United. And seeing a number of people, I wouldn't say necessarily an overwhelming number, but a number of people who were saying it would be quite handy if Sheffield United were to draw this rather than win it, um, despite the, the implications for what was happening at the top of the table. It would be it would be handy if, if they didn't pick up points. I, I, I sort of find that hard to relate to, given that when you look at the division as it stands, there's still 18 points behind Leeds having played a game more. It, it's As I say, I don't want to say an unassailable gap, but that will take some covering. Um, and in general, the, the bottom three are just, as as they have been all season, 
finding it very difficult to, to gain any traction and, and to get moving properly. Um, I think in the case of a side like Newcastle, they're in real danger of getting sucked in, even though it's it's only seven points from Leeds to Newcastle. It's one side creeping, you know, sort of steadily forwards. It's one heading backwards at a rate of knots. Um, so, yeah, I, I think 19 games in, 26 points. I, I really think that is every bit as good as, as anybody realistic would have expected from Leeds this season. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. If you are stuck at home, totally bored of Netflix, you've completed Netflix and realized that there's a reason people only play Scrabble once a year, well, we are coming to your rescue at The Athletic. Teamed up with Prostate Cancer UK to put on 31 football quizzes across February and March to find the most knowledgeable subscriber and to raise money for a very important cause too. Prostate Cancer UK help fund life-saving research and they provide valuable support and information for men and their partners affected or worried about prostate cancer. There's going to be a quiz on for every team that's covered by The Athletic, which means, of course, there'll be a Leeds United one hosted by this guy, Phil Hay. You're doing the honours. I am, yes. Um, so I will apologise in advance for any shambles that, that ensues. But um, I'm I'm really looking forward to this. I'm hoping that we're going to have uh, Simon Grayson on um, as our PC UK representative. Um, there's a chance, although unconfirmed, that Victor Alter might be joining us and also hoping to have a signed Leeds United shirt um, to give away. And beyond any of that, um, hoping to raise a load and a load more of money for Prostate Cancer UK. The winners of each club quiz will go through to the grand final at the end of March when there's going to be £1,000 up for grabs as well. And The Athletic will match this with a donation to Prostate Cancer UK. Um, So it's going to be good fun, I think, this one. Teaming up with your household to play. Chance to do something cool as well. Donate a little bit of cash to a great cause. You can sign up for a free 30-day trial with The Athletic at theathletic.com forward slash PCUK. That's theathletic.com forward slash PCUK. And as soon as you've signed up, you can register to play the quiz. Big news at Ellen Road at the start of the week. Investment from the San Francisco 49ers. Well, their investment arm anyway. The 49ers Enterprises now own 37% of Leeds United with Radrazani, Andre Radrazani, through his company Acer, holding 63% of the shares. Um, this is kind of strange, isn't it, in that it's, it's a massive piece of news about Leeds United springboarding into the next step of their future. And yet there's not a great deal to say about it. It's just a good thing. Well. As is the case with a lot of takeovers um, that are not, for example, like uh, those that have gone on at Manchester City or Roman Abramovich's, where it was literally in the door, buy out Ken Bates and then start spending wildly straight away. You almost need to come back in three years, five years' time, revisit this news and see what the, the practical impact was because there are a lot of plans and ideas in the heads of Radrazani and, you know, Parag Marathi, the 49er 
Niners Enterprises president, who's now vice chairman at Leeds, and, and the people around them. A lot of ideas for the way they're going to develop the commercial and, and corporate side of the club, and particularly for the infrastructure. So the, the changes that they want to make to Elland Road as a stadium and the area around about, and of course the, the training ground at the, the proposed site um, in Holbeck, the old Matthew Murray um, Secondary School site. Um, but when we spoke to them on Monday, and, and it, you know, it should be said that this was a bit of an open secret that this was coming, and, and it, it's fresh investment from the 49ers rather than than new investment in the sense that they already had 15% of the club as a result of that deal that was done back in 2018. But this, you know, for, for more than £50 million, has bumped their um, shareholding up significantly to, you know, very close to 40% now and, and really not far away from a 50-50 split, which I think begs questions which they're never going to answer at this stage, but of, of whether or not we're looking at a, a future buyout of Radrazani and a, a scenario where the 49ers, um, in one form or another, own Leeds United or, or have majority control of them. Um, but those are the, the things that, that they were trying to stress um, on Monday and to stress them as long-term goals, really to say this announcement and you know the, the money that's coming in is not going to make a tangible difference overnight in a way that the supporters are going to see or that any of us are necessarily going to understand in any great detail. I mean, for example, on, on Monday, there was a week of the transfer window to go, but the plan to sign nobody in January, the plan to, to do nothing at this stage and, and wait until the summer window um, stays as it is. Um, I don't think we'll see any arrivals before the, de- the deadline passes um, this Monday coming. And, and there was certainly no suggestion that the 49ers committing this cash would suddenly mean that Leeds were able to do deals in the last week of the window that, that otherwise they wouldn't have been able to afford. Um, some of this cash will go toward um, going as working capital, so essentially paying day-to-day costs. Um, nobody's commented on this, but I suspect that it's likely, given that these are uh, this is a purchase of existing shares rather than a, a new share issue, so in other words, the creation of new shares that the, the 49ers take on, I would assume that some money is going to, to Radrazani, who has loans in the club and, as, as Leeds would say in the Championship, was paying between a million and 1.5 million every month to cover um, costs that weren't met by, by the club's turnover and, and the club's revenue. Um, so it, it's more about the grand scheme and it's more about the bigger plan that they're going to hatch together than it is about the, the impact that's going to be felt here and now. Because, to be honest, I think the club as it was on Sunday um, was no different to the club as it was on Monday night. Uh, what they like to think and, and the, the model that they're trying to project, the image that they're trying to project is that in five to seven years' time, the, the time scale that Radrazani gave us, it will look significantly different in, in many respects. One thing just to clear up then is um, the 49ers Enterprises that have bought this shareholding. They launched a fund over in America that has allowed other investors to come on board with them as well, which is why we've seen the name of Chad Hurley, who's the co-founder of YouTube as one of the uh, the other investors in the fund. And he seems like an interesting character. He's worth looking up on uh, on Twitter if you haven't yet heard from him. We'll go through um, some of the clips now then, actually, of the, of the press conference. And thanks to um, Adam Pope and the team at BBC Radio Leads for sharing this audio as well. The first one of which comes from Andrea Radrazzani, who did clear up that the, it's actually more than £50 million that's come into the club. And Andrea, going forward, I mean, how this investment, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong or not, I understand the Times are reported up to £50 million. If that is accurate, how do you see this taking leads to the next level? It's, Where will it lead? It's something more, it's something more, but I don't think it's about the, the level of investment done at the moment that changed the life of Leeds United. 
our understanding has always been that Radrazani valued the club um, in the region of £250 million, something like that. So as a, a sort of basic calculation, the, the addition of 20%, 22% of shares to the uh, the 49ers stake would give you a, a valuation of around about £50 million for, for that purchase. And we, we did ask Radrazani about this and he said, no, it, it, it is more than that. Um, and again, difficult to know the exact figure. We don't have any details or documents on Company's House yet. I'm, I'm waiting for them um, to drop so that we can get a, a little bit more of, of the devil behind this. Um, and, and just to go back to, to something you said a moment ago, um, it the 49ers invest uh, enterprises is an investment arm um, connected to the San Francisco 49ers. So it is a slightly different entity um, that bought in in 2018 and has and bought in again um, 2021. That's not to say that they're unconnected because they're absolutely not. You know, um, Prag Marathi is very close to Jed York, who, who runs the 49ers. You know, it, it is essentially all part of the, the same family of businesses. Um, but because it is an investment arm, they, they appear to have venture capitalists behind them and venture capitalists who are involved um, in this particular fund to invest in Leeds. So you mentioned Chad Hurley, the, the YouTube founder, um, he's a, an executive board member at the Golden State Warriors, the NBA team out in California, uh, who have had a, a pretty successful decade, to, to say the least. Um, that was was one of, of his investments. Um, and likewise, a guy called Nick, Nick Swinburne, who um, is the founder of Zappos, a, a big online retailer, sells clothes and, and shoes over in the States. Um, he likewise has got a very small shareholding um, in the Golden State Warriors and was also part of the ownership group at the Swansea City, the, the Americans who bought in there, again, at a low level, but you know, clearly in the background. So there are, and I'm told that there are other individuals um, involved as well who, who haven't made themselves public, um, but it is essentially coming from 49ers Enterprises. This is money that is going into them and, and 49ers Enterprises are then deciding to, to invest more in Leeds. So essentially you will see Marathi as the front man in this. And I think the decisions that are made here will, in the main, be, be guided by him and, and people like Jed York. Well, if you caught the press conference, and there's there's half an hour of it, you can see on um, via Adam Pope's Twitter, he um, he posted that. There was a lot of, and I don't mean to be snide when I say this, I'm being absolutely, you know, playing this with a straight bat. There was a lot of mutual backslapping. There was quite a lot of corporate talk. But underneath that, when you strip that away, you got a flavour for what this is actually about. And it's it's about taking the club from its championship iteration into making it a stable Premier League club. And we heard from Andrea Ratrazzani on that. It's also the, a club that comes from the championship in two, three years need to enter a new cycle and gradually change the skin. No? So it's like a, a snake that changed the skin and become new again. So the club that reached the Premier League needs to do this transition in two, three years, maintaining the foundation that he has not change. That's why we didn't change 11 players, but we know also that gradually we need to reach that. And it's very important how we bring up players from the academy and integrate that in the context. That's why we invest also in good players last summer uh, from the under-23 that is performing well. So it's all the system, and this is linked to the, also the leader. In this case, Bielsa, but we don't know yet how long Bielsa will stay. And eventually, when will come the moment that he will leave? how we manage that transition again. So it's all linked together in a puzzle. And um, it's our ability from the top to guide this uh, change transition and make sure that everything is going for the final goal. They've tried hard over the past three years to to shed as much skin as they possibly can and, and to make upgrades to Thorpe Arch, to make changes at Ellen Road. Um, and I wouldn't 
it would be disrespectful to say the changes have been superficial, but I think what they were never able to do with those was to properly catapult themselves from kind of championship club status to Premier League status as it's understood at, at the top end of the, the division. You know, if you go to Tottenham now, but but also Trafford and, and Anfield, Manchester City and, and Arsenal, you see a completely different setup in corporate terms and commercial terms, and, and you see a, a complete difference in the, the match day revenue that, that they can pull in. I mean, the the, um, the match day programme before the Brighton game, Angus Kinnear was saying, chief executive was saying that Tottenham have the capacity to pull in five times as much revenue on a match day as, as Leeds do. And they've come to realise that the stadium is too old in, in many parts. It's too small at, at 35,000 if they're, they're sticking around in the Premier League. Um, and they do need to renovate these things. I mean, it, it shouldn't, be overlooked the fact that these projects are going to cost money and that they're going to have to find the funding from somewhere to do it. You know, they're, they're not just going to be able to easily magic the cash that it takes to build a training ground um, in Holbeck or to rebuild the West Stand and potentially the North Stand too. These are going to have to be financed. And, it, you know, it, I think it's fair to say that on Monday, it was fairly light on detail. You know, we, we were not getting a lot of the nuts and bolts into how or exactly when this is going to be done. But then in fairness to them, what they're talking about is so vast and, and such a, a big project when it's all put together that it is going to take time. And, and you know, I, I certainly get the impression that the club, they're in the, in the process at the moment of planning the, the training ground over at Hol- Holbeck and doing the, the, the survey work and um, assessing the, the site there. I get the impression they would like to push forward with plans for the stadium at, towards the end of this season. You know, albeit in some... Um, initial sense, you know, start to get plans drawn together, start to to finalise it. But Radrazani did say, you know, we, we need a couple of years at this level and we need to have proper stability and we need to be able to fund these projects. You know, they're, they're not just going to happen with us clicking our fingers. They're going to have to be properly planned and they're going to have to be properly financed. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't as if they were laying out in fine detail everything that was going to happen. But as you said, you did get a clear indication of what they want the club to look at look like five or seven years down the line? Well, to clarify about Anna Road, I think uh, you, before then, at least two, three years, we cannot even concretely move on, on that. Uh, uh, and we need to be permanent in Premier League for the next two, three seasons. And then eventually we can start to think because it's a project that requires a big investment. So we need to be able to finance that and, and be solid enough in the, and stable in the Premier League. You could argue that Peter Ridsdale's big failing Maybe with the aid of hindsight, maybe it was vocalised at the time. I think probably a combination of the two. It was the failure to invest in bricks and mortar. So I feel quite comfortable with that as an idea around uh, around Ellen Road. And it's one of the things that Parag Marate touched on in this press conference about um, modernising the experience he speaks of um, in this clip that I'm going to play for you in a second. And Michael, I'd like to get to get your thoughts on this because he speaks about um, maintaining the aura of the of the stadium itself, and I guess you can extend that to the club too. One of the things that we want to do is 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 do things to improve and modernize the experience, uh, whether it be via hospitality or 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 uh, premium and whatever we do, while maintaining the aura and magic of the of the stadium itself. Because the one thing that you have to continue to respect is the hundred year old uh, tradition uh, of that stadium is something that you want to continue and ca- to capture. So. Yeah, we're going to help at Ellen Road. We're going to help uh, at the club wherever we can uh, help our counterparts. As a man who hates change and wants everything to look old and shabby, because you love Ellen Road, don't you? Because of its shabbiness and its wonkiness. What do you think of that? It does need to happen, doesn't it? It's one of those things that 
we've been dragged into the Premier League with this this relic of a stadium, which we we do love. But I guess when you look at things like the Spurs situation, we do need to, we do essentially want to compete. And if the stadium is something that's going to hold us back, it's something we have to accept is going to have to change. I think if we can do it a piece at a time, it'll be far easier for people to accept. I think if all of a sudden we found we were building a brand new stadium somewhere else in Leeds or even on land next to the stadium, it would feel like a a completely different thing. I think going a a step at a time just gives everyone a nice bit of time to adjust and we Mm. can all feel like there's a new West stand, but it's still our Ellen Road and then there's a new North stand, but it's still ours and there's a new South stand, but it's still ours and eventually the whole thing's changed. But if it, I think as long as it's, Built within the same footprint, it'll keep some some of the the vibe of Ellen Road about it. It's a lot of new grounds, I think, suffer for being for the location they're built in, in the first place because they tend to be in out of town retail park kind of areas, and also for the fact that they they're not they don't have an awful lot of character in terms of individual stands. It feels more like a bowl, and I think if we're going at this a stand at a time, it'll maintain that that feeling of an old school ground. So hopefully, it can be it can be bigger but with distinct stands. I look at something like Dortmund, I suppose, where you can yeah. you can still see that there's very much as an end that the Leeds fans can go in and an end for away fans yeah. and things as opposed to it just being... Even oh. though we, we might end up with a bowl though, that's the point, but they might do it. If they do it a bit at a time and sneak it upon us, then we're more tolerant of that. And if it can look a bit uneven still, I think... <laughs> <laughs> it might do. I mean, I, I tend to think what they're going to do and we'll get onto the development itself is I think they'll go backwards on the cop because they've only got the park and ride behind it. They can eat into a bit of that land, I think. Um, and then maybe, if even if they do redevelop the South Stand, it'll probably be of a similar size to it is now. Maybe with a little creep backwards over Ellen Road a little bit enough that you can get away with but I tend to think they're going to they're gonna try and make it look uniform I don't know why I think that I just I just think it might be that but I agree with you about about the um the idea of doing it more slowly a little bit piecemeal if you can because it just softens the blow of the change doesn't it we don't we don't embrace change well in Yorkshire because um Phil and I we, we were texting about this and I said my love for the old stadium and you kind of echoed this as well Phil is like it needs modernizing but we'll miss the old thing we, we I was sort of saying for me it's because my formative years were spent there watching Leeds getting promoted from the old Division 2. That's not that, that spell between 88 to 92. It looks fundamentally the same as the ground to all intents and purposes. Plus, uh, I've got memories of Yeboah in there, seeing him when I was a teenager, and then the Champions League nights as well. And it's the same stadium, and I kind of don't want to erase those memories. I feel like part of the, the reassuring thing about making it bigger, which is that, it feel, I don't know what Phil thinks about this, it feels like if we did get to a point where we had 50, 60,000 seat a stadium it feels like we'd be less likely to drop back into the championship because they would be so much invested in us staying in the premier league essentially the people who own the club would have to make it work it feels like it feels like a different type of development to when Bates wanted to build use the land to build a hotel on it because he thought that would generate money outside of football if it's if it's all in the actual stadium it feels like the football is once again at the core of the business yeah, that's right it's, it's not an exact science um and and you've seen clubs who've invested sensibly or, or- or thought they were investing sensibly, go down because the, the Premier League can can do that. I mean, I I always loved the old main stand at Tynecastle where, where Hearts play, um, and it you know it, it should have been condemned years ago. And and you went into it, and there was there's always that kind of fear that one day you might fall through the floor because the floor looked like it was about to give way at, at any point. Um, and it you know you, there's that little bit of you that's slightly sad about the fact that it's going to disappear and that what you'll get is lovely and sparkly but but is brand new but then you think to yourself if you did ever fall through the floor you, you wouldn't think like that and actually if you're ninth in the division and, and trailing behind St Mirren and Kilmarnock because your match day revenue is, is woeful then there's nothing really to love about a stand like that and and they don't have they've got a they, they sell 
um, to the the season ticket cap at the moment at, at Elland Road. So up to twenty three thousand. They've got a waiting list of of twenty thousand. There's clearly, you know, even without factoring in match day walk ups and, and everything else, there's there's clearly the the demand there, and and it definitely has to be done. The, the one thing they've never ever spoken about at Leeds, certainly not since the the Ridsdale days, but I'm talking more about in this era and and with this um this board and and this regime is the possibility of moving to another site. And I don't think that will ever come onto the agenda. And and to me, that feels like the big difference between the project that will be happening here and, and the project that they had in San Francisco when they moved from Candlestick Park, which was pretty much in the, the vicinity of, of San Francisco City itself, down to Santa Clara, which was 50 miles south. And, you know, there were planning issues involved and, and everything else. And, you know, American sport is different in the sense that now, when I was looking at the, the Golden State Warriors, and we were talking earlier about Chad Hurley, for example, who's invested there and, and now invested at Leeds, they used to play in Philadelphia, you know, so across the other side of the country, which you're talking thousands of miles in America. And you do find in the States that, I, I don't know what the, the levels of opposition are like to, but you do find that clubs will move from state to state or city to city, you know, franchises just setting up elsewhere. And, you know, in, in, I guess in that spirit, the 49ers decided, do you know what, we will just move down to Santa Clara where the headquarters were based and the training ground was based, even though it was the equivalent of Leeds moving to somewhere like Chesterfield. Um, it just isn't going to happen. And, and I think they do need to get the balance right because I obviously, knowing that this was coming, I spoke to one of our 49ers um, reporters, our writers on, on Sunday night, and was asking them about the Levi Stadium. And, and they said, look, it is advanced technologically. Um, it is it's well monetized in the sense that it has apps for food orders and merchandise orders. You know, it, it does um, look to make money out of the people who go into the ground. But if you speak to the people who follow the 49ers, their their support out there, opinion is is very divided on it. And actually, there's a lot of a lot of criticism about the atmosphere there. I mean, um, one of our 49ers writers was saying, if you go to Seattle Seahawks, who are um, the 49ers' big rivals. You feel as if the atmosphere there in the stadium there is worth a seven-point head start, whereas at the Levi Stadium, it, it isn't quite the same. Um, there, there isn't the same sort of intensity. It, it is very corporate. It is very sanitised. And it's a stunning um, construction. There's no question about that. It was very, very expensive. But also with it being miles out of San Francisco, I think the popularity of it is not as high as, as you would want it to be. I suspect it would be very different with Ellen Road if they get going seriously with this. And like Michael said, if it's stand at a time, you start to feel the place changing gradually. It's a bit of an evolution rather than just one massive hit of, of this new ground opening. And, and I've never felt that Leeds or Ellen Road was ever made to have a, a kind of nondescript um, identity kit bowl built in the middle of it. I, 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 I'm with you, really. I, when it's all finished and however spectacular it is, I would like it to be uneven in parts and I would <laughs> like there to be little quirks because honestly, when, once that all disappears, um, the game will be getting more soulless than ever. That app that the 49ers have for the stadium, the Levi Stadium app, it does show you where the queues are for the toilets as well, which are the busiest toilets. So you, I, I imagine the Leeds version will uh, maybe have, a, I don't know, a bird's eye view map of people pissing in sinks or something like that. Cause that's what it, it gets like. Um, I don't I know. I know you, you live uh, a pampered corporate life, Philip there in the, uh, in the press box, but that's what it's like down in the, uh, in the trenches. But just to pull through um, some of the threads there that we've talked about, about time scale, about having a new stadium is the phrase that gets used, but they're referring to Ellen road. Uh, this is what Radrazani said. I can visualize five, seven years to be where I want to be with a, with a potential new stadium. I mean, new Ellen road, uh, 
to to explain me better uh, and modernize uh, facilities uh, and around these facilities we have a lot of real estate opportunities so we want to build the modern club Interesting turn of phrase then. Real estate opportunities around Ellen Road, Andrea Radrazzani said, which if you'd heard those words uttered by Ken Bates, you'd have rolled your eyes. Um, well, we've seen them, haven't we? We've seen the plans, the hotel, as Michael uh, mentioned before. But but this feels like a completely different kettle of fish. But plans like this are, are far easier to, to sell and far easier to be enthusiastic about when you feel like the team are being looked after and you feel like the team are, are making progress. I think if we go back to 2011 when they spent £7 million, when Bates put £7 million into um, the, the stand and, and the redevelopment over there. And and, and actually, if you're being fair, it, it did change the stand. It did modernise it. It did make it much more corporate. But you then had the, the season that followed under Simon Grayson where the team were distinctly mediocre. They were mid-table all the way through. Grayson got sacked. They were lacking. You know, there were gaps all over the place where they needed needed quality. And it, it was very hard to, to weigh up the, the, the importance of infrastructure change when it felt like you were coasting with a team that was going nowhere. I think with this, there definitely are real estate opportunities round about. And, and you know, I've never really seen the merit of having a, a hotel in Beeston, although I think if, if you can find a way to use it properly in a corporate sense, it, it could make you money. But I think if that's an add-on to a stadium that's already been developed, and you know if that's an add-on to a stadium that's been increased in size and is selling out and is pulling in huge amounts of match day revenue, then it absolutely makes sense. I just feel that when you're down in League One or when you're struggling in the Championship, trying to talk about hotels is a really difficult sell to the people who you want to turn up on match days and to keep ploughing money um, into the club. Uh, but he was quite cautious with Radrazani, and he. he, he he wanted to stress as well that one of the things they need to do is to double the revenue and that will not be easy. You know, it's been easy to, to increase the revenue going from the championship to the Premier League because automatically you have your broadcast income coming in and you have other streams of, of cash as well. COVID has skewed a lot of that, but, you know, COVID won't, we hope, last forever. But to then double your um, income again is a, is very, very difficult. But you need to, because if you look at the amount of money that your Manchester clubs are, Liverpool pull in. You're talking five hundred million pounds a year. It's a, a massive sum, and you know I think Radrazani is realistic enough to know that it's highly unlikely that he's going to be able to push this to the point where Leeds are able to match that. But what they can do is they can get to a level where they can compete with the clubs who realistically should be going for Europa League football, who realistically should be in that little pack outside the, the Champions League places. And um, but he did say that in his view it will take three to five years, if not five to seven years. You know, this is not going to be a, an overnight click of the fingers. I will say just from a fan's perspective before we play that clip, that um, whilst the East Stand did need doing, undoubtedly, the trade-off for that was selling Fabian Delph. And that's what always stuck in the craw, I think, the fact that we had to lose another young talent in order to pay for that when we were stuck in League One. That's That was the difficulty. It was the balance well, as well, well at the time. Well, well, no, I mean, uh, the, the point of selling Delph, as far as we were aware, was two years earlier when they were talking about buying back Thorpe Arch, when the, the buyback option came up and was about to expire and they needed £6 million to pay for that. And Delph was sold. The, the kind of expectation was that Leeds would make that happen. And then suddenly they were asking for a loan from the council and they got into that 
fight because the council said we're, we're not lending you money unless we know who ultimately owns the club and of course at that point we had kind of anonymous opaque offshore owners um, behind Bates and Bates wouldn't say who they were and, and neither would they and it was was all a mess so I mean that they'd already taken that hit and Thorpe Arch had already um, strayed beyond the deadline of the buyback before they even got to the point of of selling of, of investing £7 million in the East Stand and, and I don't know whether people remember this but much of that investment was paid for um, by taking a, a £5 million loan from Ticketus, which was um, you know, kind of secured and, and promised to be paid back using future season ticket revenue. And you know, I, infrastructure at Leeds has definitely been neglected, no doubt about that, um, over the past 15 years. But that just in that summer, at a point where they'd narrowly missed the playoffs and should have got into the playoffs, and it was quite obvious what needed to be done to the team to make it better and to push it up a level. That just seemed like the, the wrong thing to do. It seemed like the wrong project to go for. We need to uh, double our revenue in three, three to five years. That's necessary. And, uh, and hopefully build a, a new stadium that can bring bigger revenue and, um, and give solidity uh, to the club. I think I always uh, give the same example, but I, I love what um, Leicester has done over the past 10 years. In, since he's in the Premier League. That's what I, I aim as a model to follow. But knowing that we have a much stronger base in terms of brand and popularity, which can bring much more revenue than Leicester outside of the, the domestic market in terms of sponsorship, in terms of uh, licensing, merchandising, e-commerce. So the bricks and mortar is there, as we've heard, all about building the revenue, which in turn allows us to, to build a good football team, which all makes sense, I would say, logically to all of us. What have Leicester done that's so good, apart from win the league? I've I've written about this um, tomorrow, Saturday morning, actually. There'll be a piece on our site um, that I've done with Rob Tanner, our Leicester writer. And there are a lot of comparisons, actually, to be drawn between the clubs. And forget any arguments about the, the respective size or fan base or so on. Radrizani said that he thought, you know, ultimately Leeds had more commercial and, and you know, financial power um, or, or the ability to be more powerful um, globally. And I think that's certainly true. I think that there is more reach for Leeds out in the world than, than there is for Leicester. But Leicester over a decade have, have done a very good job of investing in the right areas. And none of this is ever guaranteed to work. And, you know, projects that look good on paper quite often fail because that's kind of the nature of football. And you've got in the Premier League, you've got another 19 clubs who think they've got a good project and, and their project might work better than yours for, for reasons that are sometimes beyond your control. But I think what you can do is you can maximise your potential and you can maximise your chances of, of things working. And they have, you know, from, from a kind of standing start when their tie owners bought in, they, they went through this the initial experiment with Ericsson where they threw money at players and it didn't work and he was sacked. People might remember Bates at the time joking at Leicester's expense and saying, you know, it just proves that money doesn't buy you buy you success. You know, money doesn't necessarily work in that way. But that was quite a politically loaded comment because there was the feeling in Leeds that Leeds on the base didn't spend anywhere near enough, you know. So there was a bit of capital to be had in the fact that Ericsson had been sacked. But there was a kind of change in the wind at Leicester. So they started to put money into a stadium that hadn't really been touched for a while. They started to improve a training ground that had been neglected. They started to drop plans for a new training ground at Seagrave that is 
vast and incredibly impressive. And they moved into this Christmas. Christmas Eve just gone was the first day training there. But they also started to take a slightly different approach to transfers. So they would, where they where they could, bring through academy players. They would look, as as they have done recently, to sign players at a slightly lower level of cost. So your Telemans or your Fafanas, you know, guys like that, or to dig up Cantes, Jamie Vardy's, um, and then if they, you know, if the opportunity arose. Not to actively look to sell them, but to be honest enough to say that if somebody comes in and offers £80 million for Harry Maguire, you should take the money. But more to the point, you should be in a position where you know what you're going to do with that money when it comes in. You know which players you're going to target. So, for example, go and get Fafana. You know, they've sold Chilwell to Chelsea. Um, they've got James Justin, who came from Luton for £7 million. You know, there's a huge difference in, in value there. And, and Justin's been playing on, on the left-hand side for them. And they're right in the mix for the, the title again. And, you know, between the the, the executives who've been appointed, the, the way they've, with, with Rogers, somebody they wanted for a while, but somebody who they knew would build a squad and, and would have a style that could kind of filter down through the age groups. You know, it's similar with Bielsa and, and the projects that they've completed. So the training ground, for example, you're hearing the same noises at Leeds. They want to do the same things. And I think Radrazani and, and others are as realistic about the fact that it it's very it, it's almost pointless to think about trying to challenge Manchester United or Liverpool financially, you know, or directly financially. You've got to find clever ways to do it. You've got to be sensible um, in your approach. And I think the bigger thing with Leicester is probably not that they won the title in, in 2000. 16 is the fact that five years on they're right in the mix for it again I think that's probably the thing that suggests that they have a model that, that at a, a level below your real real elite clubs they've got a model that really works and as the fates would have it we have Leicester City away on Sky Sports on Sunday at two o'clock they took us to the cleaners back in November that wasn't great I'd like to avoid a repeat of that if at all possible and that's my that's my analysis on this Phil <laughs> Yes, um, good timing, and it didn't pass us by that it was Leicester uh, this weekend after what Radrazani had had said. Nothing gets by us, obviously. Um, no Vardy this weekend, which is not necessarily a, a huge problem for Leicester. They're they're set up and the the squad's built in a way where they can cope without him. But he was an absolute nightmare back in um, November, and and I watched back through some of the the key clips in that game earlier on today, and. It was a mixture on the night of Leicester getting the tactics absolutely bang on and, and almost anticipating the way Leeds were going to play, the chances that Leeds might throw up, you know, because of the because of the way Leicester would um, set up with the, the low block and, and break on the counter. But there were also a staggering number of mistakes and poor passes and, and you know, needless errors um, from Leeds, which definitely contributed to, to basically handing the impetus to Leicester. And, and I would still would have been interested to see how that would have finished had um, Hernandez's shot against the bar at 2-1 gone in. You know, I think it might have been a different finish and I think it would have been far, far more tense. Um, but I don't feel by the end of the 90 minutes, anybody was begrudging Leicester their, their victory. And actually, it was one of those occasions where Bielsa came in afterwards and said, I can't argue with the result. I can't argue with the scoreline. You know, a better team won tonight. Indeed, is he going to be out as well? Rumours of a tight hamstring, not to mention Johnny Evans, who got substituted versus uh, Everton. Blurred vision in one eye, wasn't it? Rogers said after the the draw at Everton that neither injury was serious. Um, but I would think because of the, the quick turnaround, there'll be slight doubts there at the very least. But but hard to say at this stage. As I say, one of the one of the things that Leicester have done well 
And one of the, the things that I think leads admire about them is that they, they have structured themselves in a way where they're able to cope with losses like this. I mean, Evans didn't play in the game at Ellen Road. Um, they, you know, it, it felt quite makeshift at the back for them, or there was the suspicion that it was going to be. Um, and in the end, they were able to, to put that performance together and dominate anyway. I think Vardy's a, a bigger loss for them. You know, he's still, even at, at his age, still by you know a distance one of the best um center forwards in in the premier league and um, so so they will they will miss him but i'll say this i mean i think if if leeds in any way struggle and, and leave themselves as open as they did in the second half um at, at newcastle then they'll be looking at a, another defeat down at leicester they they will not get away with that down there do you think we've learned anything from from that first game will we approach it in the same way will we get punished in the same way or do you think we'll see one or two tweaks well, that for me is the the really interesting part of it, and I think that's the thing I'll I'll be looking at most closely is whether or not because that went so wrong um, back in November, and because it felt like the first time that Leeds had properly come up short. I know they they'd lost to Wolves, and there was a lot of frustration in that game, but at the same time, it, it felt as if they were they were picked off by a side who actually put in a really savvy performance away from home, hung in the game, got the got a goal um, saw it out you know it, that felt like a night where it, it could have been a different result had Leeds just upped it slightly or, or t- made a bit more of the, the good play in the first half I think with Leicester it, it was the, the first point at which you felt like you were really colliding with the Premier League or colliding with the, the top end of the Premier League so I, I think they can cut out the mistakes Leeds that's not something that requires a huge amount of tactical work. That's just precision and, and it's just accuracy. And, and I think looking back at a lot of what went on in, in that first game, um, they'd have, you know, afterwards, the only explanation would have been, well, there was, there was no need for a lot of that to happen. But I think tactically, it's not that Bielsa is going to play any differently, I don't think. He just needs leads to be far better defensively when Leicester try to counter on them. They, they need to be far more alive to who's going where. The, the man marking needs to be nigh on perfect. But they do have the bonus of having Calvin Phillips back in for this one because obviously he was missing um, in the, the first game back in November and, and it was Cleek who played uh, in the, the defensive midfield role and, and really, really struggled um, on that evening. So, you know, the, there are things that I think will, will help Leeds down there. But as I say, when, when you looked at, on Tuesday at, at Sharm and others, kind of driving coaching horses through Bielsa's midfield. They cannot allow that to happen. Um, there are the players in Leicester's team who will will pick them off readily if they do. Worth mentioning that um, Phillips was your one to watch, actually, for the Newcastle game. And his first half performance was um, was far better. And, and I think we looked better in midfield in that one. Got away from us slightly in the second half, but he's absolutely crucial to how we play, isn't he, Michael? He's he is, but I've got concerns about him against against Leicester. Given we've been we've looked fairly porous through the middle, and they've got people like Madison and Tielemans and Barnes who will all be who all like to push forward. I am I have concerns about them, even though there's no Vardy this time. I think that's where the problems will come from. I, I mean, I actually feel that of Leeds aside, Leicester are probably the team I like most in the Premier League team. I, I like watching most. It's not you don't feel as if it's been built up with vast amounts of cash. You you feel as if what they're doing and, and the way they are as a side is entirely down to tactics and, and proper understanding and, and the way that that is at, at Leeds as well. And it's, you know, it's got the potential to be a, a, a really, really good game, this one. But I do think it's an extremely difficult fixture for Leeds. I think they'll, they'll do well to come out of this with anything. There's nothing to really hate about Leicester. That's the problem, isn't it? There's, they've got quite a lot of... Uh... You know, goodwill in the bank because they won the league against the odds, and like you say, they're doing things sort of in the right way, and they're pretty good to watch. So 
it's hard to find an angle on them. I'm desperately trying. I think I was getting a bit frustrated with the talk about us trying to be as good as Leicester, and I sort of think we're better than Leicester. We're Leeds United. We're Leeds for United. Leicester should be beating us in the League Cup now and then, but they should be finishing like 13th or something at best, and we should be the ones pushing. But <laughs> I do realise things have changed. It will be an interesting test to see if we've learned and progressed from earlier in the season. And like you say, a few marginal gains for us in terms of having Phillips back and a couple of marginal losses for them in terms of losing Vardy. And you never know if we get another early chance and we take it, it could swing the other way. Uh, Everton at home on Wednesday on BT Sport, 7.30. We've got a brand new pitch. Will that make a difference? Well, it can't hurt. I mean, we we mentioned on the podcast last week, I, I was saying that they were looking at options of what they might be able to do with it in the short term, because obviously it's going to undergo a complete refit um, in the summer. They'll spend quite close to £2 million getting that done and, and getting a new hybrid pitch um, laid with the drainage on the soil heating and, and everything else, the whole shebang. Um, this layer was um, is still costing them £300,000 plus, but it was being grown um, by the company who fitted the pitch at, at Tottenham and, and it was essentially a pitch that was being grown for Spurs if they needed it. Um, they have two surfaces down um, in London. They've got the, the grass football pitch and then underneath that they've got a, a fully synthetic artificial pitch which is used for um, NFL and, and concerts and other things like that but obviously isn't being used at the moment. But they, from what I understand, the issue down there is that if they put the artificial pitch over the grass, it does have the, the potential to damage the grass underneath. So they have they have this pitch grown in reserve if they needed it further down the line. But Leeds have done a deal there to, to take it on and, and that has been laid. That will be ready. It's amazing actually how quickly the turf can take, but they're, they're confident and no worries at all about it being ready for the, the Everton game. Bielsa tried very hard not to say anything about it publicly and certainly not to blame it. And it was similar with you know the, the constant injuries in his defence. I was asking him about that earlier this week and he said, no, it's fine. You know, the players who've come in have, have been great. There's been no problem. Um, it's not an issue. But I think privately, it must be a frustration that there's no form of partnership developing at all at, at centre-back. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's well known that privately with the pitch, he was frustrated about it. He was worried about it. It just wasn't conducive to his style of play. Um, it, it wasn't going to help Leeds be quick and slick with the football. Um, the club know that this surface will deteriorate too because they have a fundamental issue with the drainage, which is not going to go away until they got the whole thing. Um, and, you know, this is, even though it's coming in at 300k, it's, it is a short-term fix. You know, it's a solution until the end of the season and then they, they will do it properly. But it's the right thing to do because I, I think all of us felt by the end of the Brighton game that it had got to the point where it was indefensible and, and something had to be done. And clearly the club felt the same. It's only four months it needs to last, isn't it? Ten games, four months, and then we can do it all from scratch. Great stuff. If we can win two games on it, that's probably worth it. And we'll get one away as well. Well, as, as Moscow pointed out on the Square Ball podcast, he said, you know, every Premier League place is worth nigh on two million quid this time. So if we get a few points out of it, then it's paid for itself, hasn't it? And you forget you're dealing with those economies of scale. Everything's money in the Premier League, it is. And and I think when your income spirals in, in the way that it has after promotion and okay, you know, alongside a big outlay in the transfer market and a massive hike in, in the wage bill. But when it goes up like that and you've got a coach like Bielsa, I think that it runs the risk of him sitting in the background wondering why it is that the club won't address something um, so fundamental as as the pitch. But they have and, and it needed to be done. And I mean, they, they basically need to get to the summer um, clean the whole thing out and then, you know, as of as of the start of next season, they'll be up to date with technology. What's a good return from these two fixtures then? Would you accept what, two points, a couple of draws? What about a draw and a win would be fantastic, wouldn't it? But realistically, a loss and a win would be great. 
I think a point would be all right from these. I don't think we can expect anything from either of these games. I think because Everton have shown they're a good team. We I know we beat them earlier in the season, but they were. I mean, they came into that game having beaten Fulham, but prior to that, they'd had a, a run of some bad results. So I think we maybe caught them at a bad patch earlier in the season. Whereas their forms picked up, and realistically, both of these are, are top seven, top eight teams, aren't they? Two points would be good. Two points would be very good. I, I think, forget about the four points that would be dropped. You'd be talking about having competed well with side who are third and two points off the top of the league and, and a side who, who still will have a chance of, of Champions League qualification. Um, a win from either game would be would be absolutely fantastic. I think, like Michael says, the, there's the potential to take very little from them because you are talking about two very, very strong clubs. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't be ridiculously ambitious here. You get the sense that Ancelotti won't repeat the same thing that happened in the first game. He's maybe learned some lessons from that one because it seems to me that Leeds' style works really, really well against a certain subset of teams in this division and then not so well against others. Like It didn't really work against Leicester in that first game. Whereas I think the Everton game actually, quietly, was possibly one of our best performances of the season, if not the. I think it was the best. I, I think you'd compare it to Villa, but I, I kind of feel like Everton are a better side than Villa and, and that'll be shown in, in the final table. Um, and I also felt that Villa really did flag after Leeds scored. You know, they almost threw in the towel. I, I think they threw in the towel because Leeds were playing so well and were so confident. Whereas at Everton, you know, Leeds dominated over there. Phillips had, I think, the best game he's, he's ever had for Leeds. But it, it took right until, you know, the, the closing stages to win that. Um, and, and at a very difficult ground and against a really proven and, and competent manager with, with plenty of good players in that squad. I, I think it I think it is the, the best of them so far. I, essentially, we're seeing again that the games in which Leeds look like profit in most are the games that are open and the games that, that are free-flowing and, and where teams want to come at them as much as Leeds want to, to go at the opposition. The, the matches consistently, and this is you know nothing new for Bielsa, matches consistently where it's been difficult have been those where teams employ a low block or or think most about their structure and, and being compact, you know, their discipline as opposed to their attacking play. So Wills was was hard work, Palace and Leicester, um, exactly the same. Um, and, and Brighton as well, you know, Brighton didn't take huge risks. Brighton played the percentages and, and it worked for them because that is the thing that does tend to work against Leeds. Leicester at home on Sunday, I mean, perhaps they'll feel a, a little bit more inclined to, to come out, but you know the system they used at Ellen Road does work very well for them. Everton, on the other hand, I think will be willing to, to attack. I think they'll be happy to come to, to Leeds and, and have a go because they'll know that that, that game at Goodison Park, it, it could have gone their way as much as they didn't deserve it to. You know, they did have chances here and there. Um, and I think, you know, back to back, these are two terrific games. And it'd be nice to see Leeds build on that restoring confidence that we got at St. James's Park. Because it wasn't there, I don't think it had returned 100% off the back of those uh, sort of run of defeats. It felt like there were occasional wobbles. Hopefully we can have a nice solid game against Leicester. And then, you know, if not, we run it forward to Everton and get a good solid uh, performance on the board. That feels important as well. I just don't feel like any of this is infecting them though. You know, even even the dips, it doesn't feel like it's lingering. You, you never under the impression that anybody there is losing faith in anybody. To go back to the Manchester United game and the heavy defeat at Old Trafford, the questions that were asked of Bamford at the end, you know, would you consider going to Bielsa and asking him to change his style if he thought it was necessary? And he was just completely nonplussed by it. I think, firstly, because the idea of challenging Bielsa like that is, is ridiculous. But secondly, because 
they were in pretty good nick at that point. You know, they, they'd beaten Newcastle the week before. They had um, West Brom and Burnley coming up after that. They were in a steady position in the league. And in the main, there was no sense of crisis internally at all. And, you know, to, to revisit a discussion we've had a, a few times this season, they do seem to be judged by different standards leads. And I think it's entirely down to the fact that they've got Bielsa's head coach and entirely down to the fact that there are people out there I feel, who think that Bielsa gets too much credit for what he's done and, and too much credit for um, for the impact that he's made. I think when you're as close to it as we are, you, you understand it a bit more and, it, and it's easier to appreciate. But really, I, I would be surprised, as, even though January has not been a good month up until Newcastle away, I'd have been surprised if it was really eaten at anybody. Because again, you only have to dip down to the bottom three of the division to, to see what real trouble looks like. Uninformed heathens, those people are. That's what they're, they're uninformed heathens. And I imagine that conversation of Patrick Bamford uh, tapping on Bielsa's door and saying, uh, uh, Gaffer, that's going to be a short conversation, is it, when he asks him to change style? Can you throw 30 years of uh, of work out the window and do what I ask for me, please? I had talks Barton on the way here. They said you should change everything. Yeah, uh, Gabby Agbonlahor said something different to what he said last week or whatever. Uh, wants to watch, please, Phil. Uh, the player, the battle, the issue, whatever it might be, the key feature of the upcoming game. We need two, please, one for Leicester, and one for Everton. Uh, Leicester, Harvey Barnes, who seems to have been having a, a very, very good run for them. And as everybody recalls, is the player that Leeds almost got and didn't quite get at the start of um, of Bielsa's, uh, Bielsa's reign um, at Leeds. Uh, he is looking like somebody who is, has got the potential now to, to develop and become a, a really, really high-level, top-class Premier League player. And against Everton, it's going to be Rodriguez. I I. I was expecting big things of him at Goodison Park and you were expecting him to be a real handful. And I think one of the things that did Leeds most credit was that they were able to handle really quite easily that front three of Richarlison, Rodriguez and um, and Calvert-Lewin as well. The, the, the kind of battering ram that you were expecting through the middle and, and the finesse and the quality from either side didn't really materialise. And I think that's probably the key with Everton. If you can nullify players like that, you you ask the question of where else it's it's going to come from. So Barnes at Leicester, um, Rodriguez at home to Everton, they would be the two. And predictions then, we've given our thoughts on what we hope might happen. What do you think will happen? Pair of defeats. <laughs> Let's move it on to Palace. <laughs> Thing is, two defeats and then beating Palace, absolutely fine. Three points from three games, point a game. That sees us miles and miles clear of everything. I feel more optimistic about the Everton game than Leicester. I'm, I'm really not fancying anything from the Leicester game on Sunday. Everton, I think, will be much closer. I think it will be much livelier. I think there's the ability to have a point or more out of that. But I, it wouldn't surprise me if they come out of these two games with one point. For me, head says three points. Heart is saying a ridiculous four points. Why not? <laughs> where, where, where are those three points coming? We'll be Everton at home and we'll draw against Leicester. Excellent. Probably Saves not. Me going. Yeah, probably not. But that's, you know, one of us has got to be optimistic. We've got to counterbalance the universe when Michael's so pessimistic, haven't we? Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll be back in the wake of the Everton game to, uh, to pick over that one uh, on next week's episode. And you can subscribe to The Athletic for a special New Year price right now. You get the full Phil Hay experience and a whole lot more from the world's best football writers and ad free versions of all our podcasts for less than £1 a week to enjoy The Athletic in 2021. Head to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. Theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. Ta-ra. The Phil Hay Show.